listening to audio from Oasis Church in Winter Haven, Florida. For more information about Oasis Church, please visit our website at www.oasischurchwh.org. And thanks so much for listening. Last week, we started a series called church leadership. If you're visiting with us and, and, and you're, you're not from here and you'll be gone, understand what we're doing in this little four-part series is I'm trying to bring the, the body of Oasis Church up to speed with what we understand God teaches in His Word about church leadership because, thankfully, we are in a season right now where we are about two-thirds of the way of proving a brand new elder for this body. And we're excited about the possibilities of installing this new elder. But we want you to go through the process so that you'll understand what it means when we ask you to take part in that. Because we are. If you are a covenant partner of Oasis Church, we're going to ask you to take part in proving the elder that we want or that we are, are praying and considering installing. But in order for you to do that effectively, you got to know what we believe about this. And the last time we talked about church leadership was in 2013. We've had quite a number of new folks come along with us since 2013, and that's why we're doing this series again. Last week, we just started it off by coming to an understanding that the church itself belongs to God. It's His establishment. He's the one who owns it. But not only does He own it, but we learn that the church is run by Jesus Christ, who is the head. Not only does He own the establishment, He's the owner-operator. He's the CEO, the chief everything officer of His body, the church. So we learned last week also that God uses human representatives to lead. Why he wants to do that or why he chooses to do that, I don't know. But we find throughout Scripture that he consistently in both Old and New Testament would raise up leaders to lead the body or the people on behalf of him as they seek him and pursue him and then they invite others to come alongside and walk with them as they follow the leadership of Jesus who is the head, most specifically, of the church. We learned last week that God values plurality uh, that leads and leads to both counsel and accountability, and synergy. So God's not about raising up one person to be the center head figure, to be the the, the mediator between him and the people. No, he raises up multiples, and he puts people together based on their giftings and the way that he has designed them and the way that he is moving and leading them. And then they together lead the body as just one of the body yet set aside for God's purposes. We learn that neither Scripture uh, nor historical tradition provide us with an absolute model of how churches ought to be governed. It's why many of you have probably come from other churches or maybe you've known other churches that do things differently. You might have come from one that was led by a pastor and he alone set the, the stage and he alone did everything and decided everything. Or maybe you come from a church that was led by a pastor and a group of people called 
deacons or elders or bishops or whatever they were called in your context. Or maybe you even came from a church where you would have a pastor because some group somewhere else in the United States said, this is who you're going to get because we make decisions for you and you've not ever really had a say or anything other than just we're here and we put the money in the plate. So I don't know what traditions you come from, but all of those traditions have, to some degree, said, how does God want it done, and how has he presented principles to us to enact? But the Scripture doesn't tell us exactly how to do it. It just lays down some, some truths that we're to take and, 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 we can, and we can wrestle with and we can seek God and try our best to come to a structure that most clearly looks like he intended So we learned that nothing tells us exactly what we're supposed to do, so we have to lean hard into Him. We're going to see three things this morning. First, we're going to see the need for biblical understanding as it applies to church leadership. Okay, We we need to understand the Bible correctly if, if we're going to ask it to tell us how things ought to happen within the context of the church. And then we're going to move a little deeper into the weeds. We're going to look to the scripture and we're going to look at some biblical terms. Okay, how are these terms used so that we might glean some understanding? So when they're mentioned in scripture, exactly who is it that God's talking about and how are they to function together? So we're going to look at some biblical terms through a correct biblical understanding and then we're going to try to derive some biblical principles. After we try to have a a good overall understanding and we've got the terms, then now how do we put those together in principles so that we might walk away from here knowing that at least we're moving in the best direction that we can, and then we'll close it out with some applications. First, let's look at at the, the need for biblical understanding. And this is true no matter whether we're talking about church leadership or whether we're doing a series on 1 Samuel or if we're doing a series on uh, you know some, some sort of New Testament topic. This is true anytime we come to the Scripture. This is true when you sit down with the Word, wherever you sit down every day or however often you sit to read and to listen and to study. The notion of the need for correct biblical understanding, it is an umbrella that all of those things must come over. Listen to these three questions. As we want to understand the Bible correctly, we need to ask these questions. Number one, what did the Bible say to its original hearers? What did the Bible say to its original hearers? hearers. If if we're going to come to a study of, let's just say, the book of Isaiah, there's all kinds of confusing things in the book of Isaiah. We've got to make sure that we're constantly asking the question, what was it that God was saying through the prophet to the people of Israel? Because if we don't ask that question, then we will read the book of Isaiah as though God were talking directly to us. God was not directly talking to us. You can argue that God was indirectly talking to us as he's revealing himself to his people 
we can understand things about God. We can begin to understand some things that God is going to do or planning to do, how God thinks, how God, how God acts within the context of his leading his people. But we've got to be careful that we don't take a scripture that's not written to us directly and try to apply it directly. So we've got to make sure we ask, who was, who was this author writing to? It's also a good thing, when was this author writing and what was going on in the lives of those who were hearing? That's called the historical context of the Scripture. What's happening at the time God said what he said? But then we can move to the next question. After we understand what God's saying to the original hearers, then we can back up and we say, okay, but then what was God saying to everyone that he wasn't directly speaking to. I think about when Paul said that all Scripture is profitable for, for teaching, for correcting, for instructing. You know, he was talking about primarily the Old Testament, and he was speaking those words to Gentiles who had never heard or, or never walked in the context of the nation of Israel, the Jewish traditions. And he said, but, but listen... The Old Testament is profitable for you. It's going to teach you about how God works with his people, the way God sees and thinks and acts, and what God expects from his people, and that's going to help you. So we ask, so, so even though he's not speaking to us, what is he saying to everyone? And then the last question is, now how do I apply what he has said to everyone to my life in 2020? But y'all, listen. It's going to be 2021 here before too long. Amen? Are we ready to get out of this 2020? Hindsight. Let's get it there. Okay, so whatever time I'm living in, now how do I apply it? I understand it in its historical context. Then, then what is God saying to everybody in all times, and then how do I put it to work? That's one of the biggest uh, miscues of the church today. We don't have a problem understanding it how it was written. We don't, understand, we don't have a problem wanting to hear what God has said to everyone. It's where application comes that we all start fumbling for some candy or, you know, checking the, the buzz that we just got on the phone because we're just really not interested in doing. We're interested in knowing, but doing is a lot more uncomfortable. But that's a part of the process. What did he say? What is he saying to us? And then how do we put it to work. And there are some confusing things that if we're not careful, I'll just throw you one up that is in Matthew chapter number 5, verse number 29. It's in the Sermon on the Mount. And, uh, and Jesus says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it's better for you to lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown in hell. Okay. All right. That sounds very violent. Okay. That sounds very uncomfortable. That sounds very painful. Jesus says, if your eye causes you to sin. Now, let's just Let's just be honest. Ready? Everybody raise your hand. Okay? This is a Jeopardy moment. Everybody raise your hand. All right? So there's the answer. Everybody got their hand up? So now here's the question. Who has had their eye cause them to sin? Thank you very much. I appreciate y'all answering. Y'all are very honest this morning. I appreciate that. Of course your eye leads to sin. But here's what... Here's what Jesus is not saying, that we need to, to take an ice pick and pluck our eye out because we have looked. He's speaking in, in the context of lust right here. He's not saying that you should, if you've ever lusted, that you should poke your eye out because 
even though your right eye is gone, your left eye is going to look too. And we'd have a bunch of blind males in this room this morning. And I think probably some females might be struggling to find their way around too. So Jesus is not saying, go pluck your eye out. But what Jesus is trying to do in this section is show that sin extends farther than the action. Just because you've not acted on it doesn't mean you haven't sinned. Adultery not committed does not make you not an adulterer if in your mind you have had adulterous thoughts and everyone in the room would be then an adulterer. So even if you poke this eye and that eye and cut off this hand and that hand, you still cannot rid yourself of sin because it is resident in the heart. And Jesus is beginning to build the argument that he has come to affect change in the heart. So we've got to be careful that we don't look to the Scripture and go, well, that's what it says. We'll be outside with a pocket knife and just stop by and we'll handle that problem. No, no. We've got to understand it correctly. All right, so we've got some terms that we need to talk about. One more thing before we get out of an understanding is that in Scripture, there are, there are many, different, many different types of instruction. But when you come to your Bible, I, I need you to understand one of, the biggest, one of the biggest things you need to ask when you read the Bible is you need to say, am I reading something that is being described? Meaning that the writer is simply describing what's happening or do I, do I take this as something that's prescribed? Meaning that the author is telling me to do so. Am I hearing a description or am I hearing a prescription? Am I understanding, am I hearing that the author is saying, do these things? And there are some things that we are told to do. Many times, however, there are descriptive things that we might begin to glean principles of going, oh, okay, I see how this happening in this context that seems to be the way God was intending it for those folks but now is that something that we need to turn around and do I'll give you for instance in the book of Acts chapter number six I think Charlie the deacons were chosen out of the early church and they chose the, the apostle says choose for us seven qualified men Okay, awesome. What are they going to do? Well, they're going to take care of some of the physical needs of the people while we, the apostles, focus our attention on the Word and prayer. Well, okay, does that mean that every church needs to have seven? Is that descriptive or is that prescriptive? And we're going to get into some of that. All right, let's look at some terms. you got a handout here. And you're looking at these and you're going, we are never leaving today because of all these verses that I say, listen, let me just let me encourage you. We're not going to go through all of the verses. Because we're not going to go through all of the verses, I wanted you to have them. I wanted you to be able to go home and look at these and consider these and ponder over whether or not I have any idea what I'm talking about. And if you get home and you go, I don't think he knows what he's talking about, write down the questions. Let's get a cup of coffee. I got a new coffee pot in there that y'all gave me last week. Stop by the office. We'll have a cup of coffee. We'll talk about it. Okay? So that we're just going to go through some terms that are pertinent to New Testament church leadership. That's all we're going to focus on, and let's get through these today, and then uh, we'll get even deeper in the weeds next week. All right. The terms and the titles and the things that we use in our vernacular, here are some of the terms that we use for 
church leaders that we encounter. We call them things like pastor, preacher, reverend, elder, bishop, apostle, evangelist, deacon, brother, sister, lady so-and-so, first lady so-and-so. I tried my best to get my wife to take on that title of first lady. She refused to do so. I thought it was cool. She's my first lady, so I thought it would be a good title. She didn't like it. That's cool. But there's a lot of folks who do use those types of title. Some of them might be biblically accurate. Others of them I look at and go, I don't know that you ought to call that. I don't know that you ought to let people call you that. I'm not sure what you mean by that. We're going to look at what we think are the New Testament terms that are referred to when it comes to leaders in the New Testament. There are five biblical terms that, uh, that, that we see. You'll see them in the handout. Here they are. Apostle, elder, bishop, overseer, pastor, and deacon. These are the terms that are used in the New Testament. Now, three of those, we think, are referring to offices. So an official office, three of these terms, we think the Scripture is teaching that. The other two terms are more likely the the, the description of a gifting that the person has. So maybe not a particular office, but rather the description of a set of gifts that they have. And and you all know that have been around here a long time that we believe that God gives all of his children a, a, a supernatural endowment of his spirit to be used for the betterment, the building, and the encouragement of the body. We call them spiritual gifts. Maybe one day we'll do a series on all of those. But that's what we would say for two of these. We think they would refer to an office. One of them primarily refers to a unique office, but it also refers to a spiritual gift in a few places. And the one that is most common is used in the text primarily about spiritual gifts. So let's look at these terms. They are apostle in the Greek, apostolos. You can sound these words out and you can learn four new words in the Greek that you didn't know you knew. Elder, presbyteros, bishop or overseer, episkopos, uh, pastor or shepherd is poimen and, and deacon is uh, diakonos. And so you can, you can pronounce those and it can sound as, as, as uh, learned as I am, but I'm not very learned. I'm reading them out like so this. Life forgot all of, if not most of my Greek. All right, let's look at apostle. It's a primarily gifting word being used, but it refers also to a very specific group of people. You'll see it's used 80 times in the New Testament. 76 of those times, it is referring to the 12 apostles that Jesus chose, also including Matthias, who was chosen in the book of Acts after Judas committed suicide, and the apostle Paul, who said, I was chosen as an apostle long after the rest of these, and and I'm just like one born unnaturally. I don't know why God chose me, but he did. 76 of the 80 times apostle is used, it's referring to the 12. 
but there are four other times that it is used. And a couple of those times it refers to an office, the office of apostleship. And a couple of times it's used, we believe, as a spiritual gift. You can have the gift of pastoring. You've been around people before that you go, you know what, they just know how to speak in to the lives of everybody. It's like something happens and they just... I don't know, it's just like they know how to be there and how to walk with you through. And it's just like, I don't know what it is about them. Yeah, you do. They have pastoral gifts. You say, yeah, but pastor, what about those women that have that gift? And I didn't think they could. Don't let that trip you up. There ain't a thing wrong with a woman having the gifts of pastoring. That's just meaning they know how to shepherd. They know how to come alongside of people and be that strength and that provider of encouragement. So don't let that trip you up about that. But we think that's primarily what that word apostle is referring to, specifically those chosen by Jesus by name in order to transition from his being here to the church continuing on for centuries and centuries and centuries. Those are what we think are being called apostles. Let's move on. There's another term, the term presbyteros, and it's translated elder. 66 times in the New Testament, 16 of those 66 times, though, it seems to be referring to a particular office in the New Testament. And so I've listed the 16 uh, the, the 16 instances where you can read or you can go and read them and I just give you an explanation about what's being referred to. Uh, these seem to, to describe how the, the office was used and who these people were and how they were chosen and you'll see that beside each one I've put a D or a P. Because to the best of my ability some of these verses describe how they were doing what they were doing, and other times it seems to prescribe how elders are to be chosen or how they're to be treated or how they're to be thought of within the context of the church. Let's just see some of these. It seems that they're describing how the financial administration is worked out in the body. Elders seem to be appointed by the apostles in this particular uh, uh, chapter 14 of the book of Acts. We see them being described with spiritual authority and being utilized for discernment and decision-making within the body. Acts 16.4, they seem to be described again with spiritual authority, not, not some sort of spiritual hierarchy, not like they're some sort of ultra-spiritual person, but rather that they have the authority in the body to exercise spiritual matters. The things that are involving all of us, they seem to be laid under that responsibility or authority. The leaders of the Ephesians church are, are described in, in Acts 20, Acts 21. The leaders of the Jerusalem church are described. In 1 Timothy 5, we see that they are directors of the affairs of the church. That's describing. And then Paul tells Timothy that they need to be cared for. These that are, that are, are doing the, 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 the administrative, the, the leading authoritative work, they need to be cared for. And, and that's what you guys do for me specifically, you pay me each month. Thank you very much. We can eat and have power and a place to live. And that's you take care of us. And then you, you, you love on us like you did last week. 
We see that in 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy 5 again. It says no accusation should come against an elder without two or three witnesses. Hey, I heard Pastor so-and-so or I heard this individual was involved in this is not good enough to bring them before the body to have them removed and set aside. We need to have facts. We need to have witnesses. We need to have folks that know what they're talking about because they've seen it with their own eyes. Titus 1, they're to be appointed. James 5, they're ministers to the sick. 1 Peter 5, 1 to 3, they're to shepherd the flock of God. And, and then 1 Peter 5 also mentions elders, but that's re- probably referring to older people in the congregation that we need to respect because of their age and experience. But it could also be church leaders. Elders. The New Testament describes elders as spiritual leaders in the context of the church. But there's another word that seems to be used almost interchangeably with elders, though it is a different word. Sometimes it is translated bishop, and other times it is translated overseer. The word episkopos, it seems to be specifically used to describe an office. Five times in the New Testament it's used, and four times in the context of the church. Acts 20, 28 says that they're to keep watch over the flock at Ephesus. Acts 20, 28 again, because they were made overseers by the Holy Spirit. That's both descriptive and prescriptive. Philippians 1, leaders of the Philippian church are described. 1 Timothy 3, we are seeing the qualifications now of those that are called bishops or overseers, or we believe interchangeably elders. We see that in 1 Timothy 3. We see that in Titus chapter number 1. Guess what we're going to talk about next week? The qualifications of an elder. So we won't get that far into it today. We'll come back to that next week. So we see in the scripture that there are those two interchangeable words. Elder, bishop, overseer within the context of the church. It seems that these are the people after the apostles that are given the responsibility by God appointed by other leaders for the leadership of the church. Not running the church, not being the figurehead of the church, just simply being under shepherds, under the chief everything officer, under the owner, it seems, elders and bishops and overseers are those two words we get to the word that we most often use, and that is pastor or shepherd. It's used 18 times in the New Testament, and it seems that it's only used one time in the context of a church office. Most of the time it's in the Gospels where Jesus is giving an illustration or often talking about himself as a shepherd. Ephesians 4.11, it tells us that we're, uh, these, these shepherds are, are to be working with the, uh, the evangelists and the apostles and the prophets in order to bring the works of God out in the people so that the body of Christ might become mature. That seems very prescriptive. So elder, bishop, overseer, and then that one time pastor-teacher seems to be the terms that we need to be looking at. And you can see all of these scriptures. And I'm going to give you the opportunity. I'm not going to go through all of these. I want you to go through them. I want you to read them. I want you to understand them. 
so that when we come back next week, you'll be able to go, okay, I'm going to follow these uh, qualifications because I've already read them. And then the week following, when we talk about how we put all this together here, how does this operate here? You'll be able to pull out your little, your little cheat sheet right here of scriptures, and you'll be able to say, okay, are they, are they leaning in this direction? This seems to be what God is saying. Are they putting those things to practice, or are they doing things their own way? So that's why we're doing all this, to bring you up to speed so that you get it, you know how it works, and then you can be a part of the process because you have a responsibility in it. So I hope you'll take this and it not become bu- bubblegum housing for, uh, uh, for whatever you're chewing right now and that it will actually be, uh, you know, something helpful. If you, you lose it, all you got to do is shoot me an email. If you're watching online, you go, I didn't get a handout. Well, I know. But if you'll send me an email, Wes will throw that up there so that you can see what it is. Pastor at oasischurchwh.org and you can send me a message. I'll send you the handout. All right, so what are some of the biblical principles? When we come away from here going, okay, it seems like the New Testament's calling elders and bishops and overseers and, and that one instance of pastors and teachers. All right, what are some principles that we can glean from these things? All right, first of all, we can glean the principle that God's representative leaders in the local church are the elders and the overseers. Okay, so we didn't have to go very far on that. But that seems to be who these individuals are. Second biblical principle, the elders and overseers are chosen by God through other elders and overseers. At no place in the New Testament do we find other than the deacons being chosen so that the elders could do their job more effectively, we see nowhere in the Scripture where the body gets together and begins choosing their leaders. Though if you are a part or have spent any time in the Baptist context, then you know that that's how leaders are often chosen. They come as nominations from the floor. And they'll do it in a business meeting, and they'll say, okay, we're taking nominations. Typically in the Baptist context, it's deacons because that's who they use as their elder. They use the wrong word for it, but that's who's standing in the place of elders. And they'll take nominations. Well, I think brother so-and-so ought to be one. Oh, okay, we'll write his name down. Well, I think brother so-and-so, okay, we'll write his name down. And we get all the names down, and then it's basically a popularity contest that the church goes through deciding on who they want based on who they like the most or who they think might be the richest and more, more apt to contribute their riches to the body. And it's a very, I believe, unbiblical way of going about seeing leaders chosen. Because it seems through the study of the Scripture that elders are appointed by God through other elders. And then wouldn't that mean? If an elder has been given the charge to, to shepherd the flock, to be the ones that are, are, are given the responsibility of exercising authority on behalf of the Scripture, on, on God's leading over the people, wouldn't it make sense that that's who God would use to raise up other qualified leaders? That seems to be the principle that we lean on here. The third principle, deacons... We didn't spend any time on this one, but deacons are, are chosen to assist the elders and overseers at their request. Now, this church does not 
typically utilize the term deacon, okay? And there's a lot of reasons why we don't typically do that because primarily I don't want to confuse folks about what that role is, especially if you've come from a Baptist context and somehow thinking, okay, deacon, that means I'm on the board and I'm making decisions. That's not what we think Scripture teaches. And so we typically don't call them deacon. I tell you what we typically call them, that is ministry directors, ministry leaders, folks that have been given the charge of a particular area of the ministry, the elders, appoint them, they, they, they prove them, they make sure that they're qualified. We're not going to talk about the qualifications of a deacon, but they're very similar to that of an elder. And we believe that the deacons are, are, are specifically designed to help those that are juggling all the rest of the stuff to accomplish what needs to happen. If you were a part of a much larger church, they might not call their mega staff deacons, but I'm telling you that's where they are because the leaders can't do all of the stuff. They can't do the things that that are needed in order to keep the ministry moving forward, and they need helpers. We think that's what these deacons are called. And then the last principle that we come to is that both elders, overseers, and deacons must be proven. It's not a matter of what they bring to the table with expertise or experience or knowledge or biblical understanding. They need to be proven on the basis of their character. We're going to we're going to get way deep into that next week. First Timothy and Titus, we're going to talk about God's qualifications for those that will serve, particularly in the role of elder, bishop, overseer, pastor, teacher. They need to be proven. They, they need to be observed. They need to be walked with. They, they need to be heard, and they need to be, uh, it needs to be coming from others that know them as well and not just our first impression. All right, so we've seen the biblical understanding that we need to see correctly. We've, we've gone through some biblical principles, and now we've seen some biblical, I'm, I'm sorry, we've gone through the biblical terms, we saw some biblical principles, and now let's just see some applicational reminders. This felt more like a classroom today, I know. But if you want to go ahead and turn to Ephesians chapter 4. See, we just came out of Ephesians, right? We're going right back to it, okay? We've spent 27 weeks in Ephesians. We're going back this week. Ephesians chapter 4. And just sit on that for a minute. How do we apply these things that we've learned? I've come here and, okay, I, I don't have any idea how this applies to me. Well, first, the applicational reminders are God does not choose everyone to serve as representative leaders. But God chooses everyone to serve. You say, well, I might not ever be an elder or a bishop or deacon or what. God doesn't choose everyone to do those things. But you know what God does? God does choose us to serve. And there's not one of us in here that's unimportant. One of the biggest fallacies is to start looking at whatever Whatever hierarchical structure thing you might have in your mind about how this thing works, and you might be thinking, oh, I know how this works. It starts with Pastor Kevin, and then it comes down, and it's Michael, Shannon, and Mike, and Eugene, and, and Chad, and then, but Eugene's up there somewhere too because he leads worship, and Michael's a children's pastor, so it's kind of this pyramid. However this thing works, there's not any important people, and then there's not any super important people here. I'm just a guy 
with a set of tools and, and a calling and, and an opportunity based on what people saw and have put me through the proven process. Did that make me any more important than you? God calls us all to serve, and God wants to use us all in really some very exciting ways. Some of the ways that you get to serve, I look upon with envy. I go, man, that just looks like a whole lot of fun. Wish that I could do that. I can't. I've got this responsibility. But man, the opportunities that you have because God is good. We understand this as well. God may choose uh, to use someone to serve as a representative leader in one place and not necessarily a representative leader in another place. Just, just because someone served as a leader at the last church they were at doesn't necessarily mean that they were supposed to be serving in that role here. Maybe it is that they were qualified there, and they're qualified here, but God is choosing not to use them. Or maybe they were being used over there, and they didn't have any business being used over there because they weren't qualified. So one of the principles that we see is we've got to be very careful about who we put in roles of leadership. Even though everyone's called to serve, not everyone's called to lead, and God doesn't make folks leaders everywhere He puts them. Applicational reminder number three. God's representative leaders never represent themselves. But they represent God and his establishment. How many ministries have become so popular because of the charismatic leader that they have? You know, everybody knows the leader. They know his face. They know his sound. They read his books. You know, so it just becomes a, a picture of that person. And that's never the way it's supposed to be. It's never supposed to be about me. It's supposed to be about him. And the faithful representative leader is always pointing folks to him, not me. Don't look at me. Don't elevate me. Because I don't represent me. I represent him. Applicational reminder number four. God does not exclusively use representative leaders to do the work of his ministry. We've already hit this on the first one. Let me give it to you again. You're not here as a congregant. If, if that is your role in the, in the church, if your role in the ministry is just to be a congregant, meaning a gathered one, Meaning I'm, I'm here, you can count on seeing me in this spot or generally in this area. Some of y'all move from your general spots and that messes with me a little bit sometimes. That's not your role. Because we're not called as leaders exclusively to do the work of the ministry. Let's read Ephesians chapter 4 verses 11 through 14. Let's see it again. We saw it in our study of Ephesians. Let's look at it one more time. And he talking about God, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood or womanhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Do you realize in this room 
there are people all over the spectrum of their, of their walk with Jesus and their understanding of God's Word and how that's to be fleshed out in their life. And our responsibility as, as leaders, those that God chooses and puts in that role, or proven and placed there by other leaders, our job is to equip everybody else so that we working together might be able to, to meet wherever somebody's at on that spectrum and lead them toward a greater walk with Jesus than they had yesterday. And the cool thing about it is as God continues to bring people into our body, either by transfer but hopefully by new birth, we're constantly going to need to be bringing people along so there's never going to be a shortage of our responsibility as a body working together, bringing about what God intends for them until He returns. Our job is clear. So if you're going to be a part of this body... and Hey, we want you to be a part of this body. We're excited about what you bring to the table. But just understand, you have a responsibility. You say, well, Pastor Kevin, I don't know what my responsibility is. That's okay. Just speak up and say, I'm here, and I don't really know what my responsibility is. Well, that tells us right where you're at on the spectrum, and then we can get working with you so that you can understand. But guess what's going to be really exciting when the... On the line, somebody comes to me and says, Hey, Pastor Kevin, I'm not really sure what my role or my place or where I'm supposed to be here. I'll be able to go, It's awesome. And I can go to the last one that I worked with and go, Hey, how about bring them up to where you're at? Help them understand the things that I've helped you understand. What really gets exciting is when it's on down the line and you come to me and say, hey, look, I'm not really sure where I'm at. I'm be able to say, take your pick. I got this one and this one and this one and that one and that one. They can all help you find your place in the body so that you can become part of the process of bringing people to a place of maturity in their walk. That's exciting. That's when churches grow in a way that's healthy. We don't want just more people. If we've got more people, then we've just got more folks that need discipling. And if we're not prepared to disciple them, then we're really behind the eight ball. So I'm thankful that God has given us who we have so that we might come along maturing so that you might become maturing factors in others becoming more mature. Don't be fooled any longer. We all represent Christ and we're called to maturity and the maturity of others. You say, all right, what about my place? You've mentioned it. Where might I need to fit? Well, let me give you a few ways that you might connect and we'll be done. These are just these are just means for you to deepen your connection here. This is, this is not going to make you mature, but it is going to plant roots so that you might develop relationships with those of us who are here together, and then we might become more connected and more invested in one another moving towards maturity. Number one, Miss Tammy sent out an email. This is a way you can connect. Miss Tammy sent out an email last week about a thing called the restoration team. You say, what's the restoration team? Well, on Sundays, we do what we do here. We do what we do in the foyer and at the coffee area and in the back with the kids, and we make a mess. And school is going to happen on Monday morning, and we need to clean up the mess so that they come into a clean space. The restoration team is the team that takes about 
10 to 20 minutes after, if we're all working together, the restoration team takes about 10 to 20 minutes to just get everything sanitized and back to order so that we can lock the door and school can come in and be uh, ready for their day. If you need a place and you go, I don't know where I fit, or if you don't have enough of a fit right now, Miss Tammy, wave your hand where you're at. That's where she's at in the very back. She's waving at me. She'd love to see you today because she's going to be around she'd love to tell you how you can be a part of the restoration team or, or maybe that God has gifted you to work in the kids ministry area kids connection on Sunday mornings or in the nursery or on Wednesday night kids toast is constantly in need of helpers we got plenty in student ministry but if you're a student ministry person then I can try to find a way to get you plugged in We've got plenty of folks, but we need others in the areas of the smaller kids. We do background screens. We don't just put you back there because you want to. We make sure you're equipped and ready. But if you would like to be a part of that, you need to tell somebody. Tell myself. Tell Michael. Tell Eugene. Y'all know what he looks like because he stands in front of us every week leading worship. He's going to look at you and go, I don't know what to tell you, but just say, write my name down and give it to Pastor Kevin. And he'll do that. He'll put it in his phone. He'll tell me, and we'll get in touch with you. Kids ministry. What about financial investments? Are you connected there? He said, okay, here it comes, always talking about money. Look, I don't talk about money much at all in this church. God talks more about money than he does many other topics in his scripture. I'm just asking you to do what he tells you to do. And that would be a way to get connected. Just, just do what he says. What about being a covenant partner? We've got about five or six right now that have filled out the, the application. They go, oh, we want to be a, a, we don't call them members. We call them covenant partners. You say, I would like to be one of those. Look, go to our website, oasischurchwh.org. Click on connect, and then there's a drop down to say covenant partner. Click on it. Fill out the application. Be a part of our upcoming what does it mean to be a covenant partner Zoom class that we're going to do. Find out what it means to be a part of us at a more deep connection. Let me connect you to the mission. Let me connect you to the refuge and to Life Choice Pregnancy Center, some of the places that we support, so that you can be a part of building the body outside the body. I've got all kinds of other ways that you can plug in. But you got to ask. You see, leaders are, are called to lead. But they're not called to do all the work. We're to do all the work. Last but certainly not least, if you're a follower of Jesus, you say, I don't know my place. Okay. Share your faith. Talk to folks in your circle about who you are in Christ. Talk to people about what it means to be a child of God and, 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 and bring it into the conversation when they're talking about things that are important to them. Say, you know what? I don't, have the, I don't have all the answers, but I believe Jesus does. I'm a follower of Jesus. Are you a follower of Jesus? Do, do you believe in, in Christ? If you're a follower of the one that was crucified and resurrected, and, and, and can I talk to you about him? You say, I don't know how to do it. Glad you said that. On this table right here, I've got all kinds of resources that you can use, and I hope that you'll take some of this. The DVDs that we have over there, the, the Jesus film, there's three different ones of these. These are free. I've got many of these that you can just give out. Think about the, the person in the neighborhood that's right next to you on either side, the one across the street, the one behind you. Do they know Christ? What a way to go, hey, 
Our church was giving these things out this morning. I just wanted to hand you one of these. Uh, it's a Jesus film, and I would love to talk to you about it. If you know Jesus, great. Then pass it on to somebody that you might know that doesn't have him. But I just wanted to, I wanted to give you this. I, you know, they were giving them out this morning. I wanted you to have one. By the way, what's your name? Right, tell me what your children's names are. I see you. I wave at you, but I don't know you. And building those opportunities to share and, and be invested in the lives of others. There's, there's a, a little yellow booklet called uh, You Want to Know About how to, being, how to Be in a Right Relationship with God. That'll help you to, to, to settle how can I talk to somebody about coming to know Jesus? How can I talk to them about the gospel? You can hand them that booklet, but it'd be even better if you learned that and then handed it so that you'd be ready. Get all you want. I got all kinds of them. Then the other one are little cards that have information about the church. And on the back of it, it's connected. It shows a, a website called truelife.org. Truelife.org is a place you can go, and it has answers to all kinds of questions that would be wondered from all different types of people from all walks of life. It's a great tool, and it'll send them there. You can take as many of them as you want to. They encourage this. I know you're not going to want to do this, but they encourage you to keep a, car, a stack of those cards in your car so that when you get out to pump gas, don't leave it on top of the gas pump. Don't do that. that nobody's ever going to pick that up, and the, and the cleaning guy's going to throw it away. When you're pumping gas, they say, here's what you ought to do. You ought to go, hey, you from around here? And if they go, yeah, I live in, or nah, I'm over in Bartow, or yeah, I'm over in Lakeland. Well, look, let me just give you one of these. This is a cool thing my church does. Give you some information about our church. But that truelife.org is really awesome. It's got all kinds of answers to life's questions. Hope you have a good day. You go, that's it? Yeah, that's it. Because they've got a connection to us. And, And let me tell you something. They are going through stuff. And if they don't know Christ already... Chances are great they'll look at it and go, truelife.org, huh? It's got little pictures of all kind of life circumstances. They might just plug in and find some answers. They might throw it in the trash, but you know what? Those are cheap. We'll keep printing them. Grab some. Put them in your car. Use them. Get on there yourself so that you'll be prepared to do the work of the ministry that begins with the gospel and extends to discipleship. If all of us work together, then we'll be doing what God's called us all to do. Amen? Okay. So next week, we'll talk about what's qualification of a leader. But you got plenty to do today and the rest of the week and as long as we have till Christ returns. So let's stand together. Let's let that sink in on us. We got lots to do. Plenty of opportunities. Come down here and get the stuff. I'd love for all that stuff to be gone and somebody coming up to me and going, hey, all the little yellow booklets are gone. You got any more? Yes, I have more. I got more DVDs. I got more cards. So get all you need. Get all you want. Church, we love you. What a privilege we have to represent the king who loves us, right? We spend so much time doing all kinds of stuff. Don't matter. It don't matter nothing. We get to represent him what he's given us let's dig in on that let's let it let's let that saturate in our mind and heart and then move forward with commitment to him if you don't know jesus as your savior today let me tell you you can try any other method and it won't lead you to him because jesus has already said in the book of john i'm the way the truth the life nobody comes to the father except through me well how do we get there through him through his death and resurrection by faith 
crucified in your place and for your sin, raised victorious. Those who will put their faith and trust in Jesus and Jesus alone can know forgiveness, restoration from any and all sin. You say, Kevin, he could never forgive me of all my sin. Well, then you've, you've called him a weak God. His death covers all sin. You can't get too bad for him. You put your trust in him, he give you new life today with a new purpose, a new call. If you don't know him, you like more information about him, I'd love to spend all the time you need, but it's just a matter of God and my sinner. I believe Jesus died for me, and I believe you raised him from the dead victorious, and I, the best I know how, God, I, I, want, I want you, and I trust him. Father, we thank you for the day. We thank you for the opportunity to be in your house. We thank you for the opportunity to worship in song this morning. What, what, a, what a great time of singing that we just enjoyed. Thank you for... I thank you for, for my brother taking a risk with, with these folks sharing from his heart and from his own painful experience. But God, as he did, he elevated you. You take us through our pain. Never say it's not painful. You never tell us to call something that is horrible good, but you walk with us. You've provided us a good that will overshadow all hurts and pains. Maybe not in this life, but in eternity to come, we know that you are the completer of what you've started. So I just thank you for a great day. I thank you that you choose leaders. I thank you that... Uh, well, I thank you that I get to be one. God, I, I ultimately, I just, I just want to be used by you. I want your people to grow. I want your people to become everything you've intended for them to be so that your kingdom might be built and that they might be able to stand before you with the expectation of every much of your approval as any leader ever will. We're thankful for your grace, your love, and all that you extend to us. Father, we pray for those that are sick and hurting, those that are in need of special grace today due to the deaths most recently in our families' lives. You know their needs. Meet it according to your will and use us in whatever way you see fit for your glory. We love you. We trust you. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said amen. I don't know.